Well, good morning, everybody, or actually where my guest is this afternoon. I'm Mark Stevens, and I'm your host of uh, PR Masters podcast series, and we have a special guest today. I know I say that each time, but uh, this time I really do mean that we have a very special guest. He's does that mean uh, Does that mean uh, you didn't mean it before? I did mean it before, but you're in the super category. <laughs> you're, super category. <laughs> you're, you're an icon as well as a legend. Uh, certainly in my mother's mind or my own mind, but uh, not anybody else's. <laughs> so everyone, as you can see, because he's well known in our industry, he's a, he's a leader, a founder, an icon. He is Sir Martin Sorrell, and he is joining us from London. And uh, I don't think there's anybody in the industry who has set the pace for what the industry has become. The holding companies, you were probably among the first, Sir Martin, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, certainly your new venture, S4, you've had an illustrious career, and I think we've all followed you since your days at Sachi and Sachi, and working with the Sachi brothers, and then starting WPP 33 years ago. So everybody, please join me in welcoming Sir Martin Sorrell, and it's a pleasure to have you here, sir. How are things in London? Thank, 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 uh, well, the sun is shining for for a change. You said, you know, first the holding companies actually, you have to, you can go back to the 1950s, yeah, uh, where IPG was basically. I'm trying to desperately trying to remember the name of the guy who uh, ran IPG at the time. Uh, but he was he was the one who initiated the holding company approach, mm-hmm. primarily for because of conflict between clients. Uh, you know, you couldn't do P and G and Unilever in the same firm theoretically, because of that has has changed. And um, he he I think he had a an enormous plane as a private plane even in those days, um, and he was a rather colourful character. And but he was the founder of the concept of of the holding company. Then the next one, really, I suppose, was Omnicom. The big bang at Omnicom when BBDO and DDB and TBWA came together was what about the time that we started WPP. So, I mean, you could say Sarches was one of the first where I was the CFO. You could say WPP. Was what we wouldn't be first, probably you would say third or fourth, um, maybe fourth because you put Sarches before it. But, um, essentially, the founder was that guy at IPG, mm-hmm. um, almost sort of 80 years ago. Yeah, well, what uh, I know, which, which, which sort, of, sort of tells you that maybe the concept is a bit outworn. <laughs> You obviously led WPP for 33 years. And yeah. during the course of that, you uh, were among the first global companies to acquire public relations firms. You acquired mm-hmm. uh, Hill and Oakland, you acquired Burson, and I think Conan Wolf, and perhaps some others as well. Yeah, yeah, Adams and Reinhardt, which came yeah. with Ogilvy. But, you know, when you say acquired PR firms, we didn't... Uh, Acquire specifically PR firms. We acquired what we used to call in those days advertising and marketing services companies. And you know, in in our first iteration, really, or first stage from 1985 to 1987, we bought um, we 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 
acquired, I think it was a dozen companies in 18 months or maybe even 18 companies there. You know, we did, we were fast, fast start, but small companies that had niche positions in what we used to call below the line activities. So above the line was sort of creative advertising and below, I mean, I think below the line probably we included media planning and buying at those times because the creatives looked down on, uh, the, the, the media people were like, like traders in the investment bank. The M&A people were the creatives and the traders were the, the, the media people were the traders. Um, it's a very different situation now. So we didn't acquire per se either in that initial phase or when we acquired in hostiles, uh, so-called hostiles, JWT and Ogilvy in 87 and 89. They happened to have in the case of, uh, of JWT, uh, Hill and Knowlton, and in the case of Ogilvy, uh, Ogilvy PR and Adams and Reinhardt, which was a financial company, which spawned a number of the companies that exist today. So, so it really came as a package of you know, advertising and marketing. So I didn't isolate PR. I mean, I actually, I don't like the, the, the phrase PR or the, the initials PR because it, it sort of implies uh, gin, gin-soaked journalists in Fleet Street, um, you know, cigarette smoking in in uh, smoky rooms and exchanging stories and information. So I don't, I think you know, it's morphed now. We'll get into this. It's morphed now into obviously social media and digital, and it's a very different business to what it was. It's not writing press releases anymore. And in fact, you know, we'll get into that too. Chat GPD can write the press release for you. So, um, or Bard. So I think, you know, we looked at it strategically as an important part. And it's, it was less important in 87 and 89 than it is in 2024. The, the rise of digital media has made PR, uh, or whatever you want to call it, um, much more important. I mean, for reasons, reasons of cost, but also that one to one communication, you know, is much easier in to, today's environment with AI will become even, even, e- even easier. Thanks. Yeah. So after 33 years at WPP, you left and, uh, you formed S4, which obviously yeah. uh, reflects I guess the points you're making now about digital and uh, and the future vision. Can you describe what it is that you want to achieve, have achieved with S4, and want to continue to achieve? Well, the, the four basic principles remain the same. You know, we we're going to be digital only because that's where the growth is. If you look at the media market, it's about uh, last year was probably about globally about nine hundred and fifty billion. Mm-hmm. And digital was 650, so call it 65 percent. It'll be 70 percent by 2025. And of that 650, I think Google would be about 225. Meta would be about 125, so that's 350, and then Amazon 50, so 400. So 400 out of the 650, almost two thirds, comes from the three Western platforms. Now we don't know too too much about what. Tencent and Alibaba are doing, but they're the two Chinese ones. We know what TikTok's doing. Um, you know, latest info on TikTok is part of ByteDance. ByteDance has gone from 
60 billion of revenue to 90 billion. So that includes TikTok in China, ByteDance in China and ex-China. Outside China, uh, TikTok doubled last year, I'm told, from 10 to 20 billion. Um, you know, it's, it's on fire. It's the only platform really to invade the, what were the big five, but what I would call the big six, which are the three Western and three Eastern platforms. So, you know, the P- P- PR as the, the, the digital is, is the first principle. The second is data driven. Uh, in an AI world, that becomes even more important because data is the, the AI fuel, um, or it's the energy that will generate, or the data will generate the quality, you know, garbage in, garbage out. But if it's good quality data that goes in, you know, you'll get a good result. Now, when we started S4 five years ago or so, um, AI was already starting to have an impact, uh, but it's not as forceful impact as and we'll get into this as as we think it will is being uh, and will be but the point is that a data-driven insight you know you instead of producing a perfect commercial which takes you three months or six months to do and costs a fortune you produce like when we do netflix uh, or you know rebel moon right whatever it is um we produce something like one and a half million different pieces of content, at least in theory, you probably use about 50 to 70,000. And that model is data driven. You, you get the consumer insight, you create, you know, so we know that art or fay like uh, business, they're on the Wall Street Journal website. So we'll fashion a piece of content that compares whichever series we're trying to, to push to uh to business or if you follow a soccer team uh, manchester united or something to to we will use that so and it's an iterative process it's not a perfect process the content goes out you see what the reaction is you measure it and then you go you go you go back in so that's the second principle the third is faster better more efficient and more more because AI will enable us to do more faster because in a, in today's world, agility is absolutely critical. Better means understanding technology, not talking about it or making presentations about it or capital market days about it, but, but it's actually really knowing what's going on like we're doing with NVIDIA and uh, AWS and Adobe on outside broadcasting where we're the exclusive in- integration partner. That is deep tech and and you know AI driven. That's important. So it's become faster, better, more efficient, and more efficient in a world, particularly now, not so much the last thirty or forty years, but in a world where growth is slower, as I think it will be, it, inflation is higher than we would like, uh, which I think it will be. And last but not least, interest rates will be higher than we've been used to. Probably was unreal in the last. 30 or 40 years, you know, it was a golden era, if you like, and the, and the game has changed. But in that, in that world, um, being efficient is really important. So the third sort of set of principles was faster, better, more efficient and more. And the last one is a unitary structure. So unlike IPG or Omnicom or DWPP or Sarches, which were multiple brands, our objective is to to make sure that we have one operating brand, 
about 8,000 people in 32 countries in 57 offices, and we want to make those people available to all to all our clients. And and the information which will come on on AI will enable us to do to our people people too. So those funding principles, digital only, data driven, faster, better, more efficient, and more and unitary structure, are still as relevant, probably even more relevant today than it was a few years ago. And PR, or rather, the use of social media by businesses and by governments uh, and by other you know, other stakeholders um, is, you know, an important part of that. And I think because digital communication is in absolute terms cheaper and is more, is more measurable, um, what's happened is that PR has sort of become part of that. So, you you know, you get PR agencies now saying they have creative directors, creative departments, and they've tried to invade, you know, the advertising agency is being invaded. It's like a body, you know, the, the advertising agencies of the 1980s and 70s, you know, they, they, it's almost like a body where you chop the arms and the legs off and you're left with, with, um, an unserviceable base because you, you know, you remove media planning and buying, which has now become really important. Um, and in a, in a, in a world where there deprecation of third party cookies, which will be by the end of this year, the IDFA changes by Apple, which, you know, mean we get information in cohorts, not individual IDs. We get different cohorts of people who are very similar. In that world, um, you know, the, it, it all becomes the, the PR or social media become more and more important. And it's interesting because the PR agencies have tried to p- position themselves as capable of doing creative work um, and capable. And they have creative directors, as I said, and they they believe they can develop content. And to be fair, it's easier in a world with the web, or it's easier in a world with AI, uh, and it will become increasingly easy for them to compete. So you get these internal conflicts, which are difficult to manage. Um, I mean, the most brilliant manager of um, or leader of a multi-brand company, in my view, is Arnaud LVMH, and I think last count, he had something like 73 different brands called Maison. Mm. Um, and he manages these brands, even though there's com- obviously competition and overlap. He manages them brilliantly. And I think it's now the second most valuable company in, in Europe after Novo Nordisk on the, the weight loss drug. Um, but you know, essentially he's built Europe's most valuable company um, in an incredibly multi-branded way. So there are models that work from a multi-branded way. And I think the interesting thing about Arnaud uh, in relation to our industry is in our industry, what's happening now, you know, uh, my old firm is getting rid of old brand names, you know, putting them on the scrap heap. And, and folding companies together. 
I want to know. I think that's. I think I think I think it's the wrong thing to do because you, you know, you take VML and Wonderman. I mean, it was known, well known, that the leadership at Wonderman couldn't cope. So the better thing to do would have been to find the best leader for Wonderman. To be brutally frank about it, rather than stick John Cook over the top. Um, from VML based in Kansas City, who, uh, you know, sadly had a life threatening experience. And I think probably is reflected on that. Um, you know, it's a different John that I saw in Cannes last year to the one I was used to. So I, I think you make mistakes when you slam these things together because you lose good people and you lose good clients. And it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to execute. And, you know, the, the latest one, you know, Hill, Milton and Burson, I assume that the, the Burson people are looking at the H and K people and the H and K people look at the Burson people and said, who's going to survive? Because let's make no bones about it. The reason that they're doing, they talk about simplification. Uh, simplicity is the hobgoblin of small minds, in my view. We're paid to manage complexity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd all like to do things in neat and tidy, but inherently our business is messy. It's about people. That's the biggest investment we make. And good people are difficult to manage. Average people are easy to manage, which is a bad thing to say because average people, in order to prove they can be good, become difficult to deal with. But, you know, I, I just think it's the wrong way. The world's largest creative agency, the world's largest PR agency is in danger. Well, it's an oxymoron because there are scale, you know, what Arnaud sort of shows in a way, and he's built huge businesses, so scale, you know, he's got the scale. But in a way, what he's signaling is, you know, you could better to do it in a multi-branded, approach in the luxury industry um, and to have that 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 structure. So, you know, he, he's managing 73 brands and he manages them effortlessly or seemingly effortlessly with his family. Um, so, I, I look, I don't buy this, you know, simplicity. Um, you know, it might be if you're a management consultant, or if you called a management consultancy in and said, look, this is the structure we have, or if you're a consultant yourself, you might come to the conclusion that, you know, having a nice, neat diagram on a piece of paper, it does two things. One, it sort of simplifies it in your mind, and you think it's simplified, but it's not like that. It's not like that. And, you know, sticking a name like VML on top of a company. Burson is different because, you know, Harold Burson was one of the founders, if not the founder of the public relations industry, knew him well. He always made a contribution when, even when he retired at, at, at Burson. So, and he was, you know, very, his advice was always spot on. I mean, he was a man who you could talk to and say, look, we've got this problem. What do you think? And you, you got a really educated, answer but you know getting rid of jwt you know nobody knows in buenos aires who the hell vml is getting rid of y and r getting rid of gray 
does not make sense. Hmm. And because those are the brands, you know, we're meant to be in the brand business, for God's sake. So you know, we should be the ones that appreciate brands. So I don't buy that. I don't buy this, this go. Now, in the, the overall thing, you know, WPP was the largest holding company, got to market value, I think, of about 23, 24 billion. It's now the fourth largest. The publicist is the biggest. Um, by market cap, then Omnicom. So Publis is around 23 billion euros, I think, 22 billion dollars, something like that. Uh, Omnicom is around 19. IPG is around 14, I think it is. WPP is around 10, 11. So it's halved, halved in value from its peak. Hmm. Um, and, and then you've got Dentsu around seven or eight. And you've got, uh, Havas, which is part of, um, Vivendi maybe spun out. That would be interesting to see what Yannick Bolloray does beyond what he's done already with things like Uncommon, which I, you know, I think was a good deal for Havas and interesting one. But you know, it's, it's, uh, everybody has a different opinion on it. That's just my opinion. And, um, you might, you might want an easy life, but it isn't an easy, easy life. It is, it is complex. And the, the disruption. I mean, just think about what's happening inside Hill and Norton and Burson now. Hmm. And you will lose people and you will lose accounts. When you started WPP, did you have a game plan as to what you wanted to accomplish? Obviously, you come Um, out of the world of advertising. Yeah. I mean, the answer is, if you looked at the first document that we issued uh, in 1985, when Preston Rabel, who was my partner at that time, and I bought 29.9% because we didn't have the funds to go beyond that. And if you bought 29.9%, they issued new shares to us. If you had 29.9%, you didn't have to make a full offer for the company. Ending over 30, you, you had to. But when we issued that document, we said we wanted to build a major multinational marketing services company. That's what we said. And... So, you know, I wouldn't say that at that time we thought, I thought JWC was a potential target, JWC group, which was Hill and Knowlton, Lord Gallery, uh, Frederico and Einstein, which is uh, another story, long story to go through. Uh, JWT itself, J. Walter Thompson and MRB, which was a research company. So what it did, you know, we, for the first 18 months, we did as I said, a large number of small deals in the in the unsexy areas of the industry below the line. I, I used to say it was below the salt in, mm-hmm. you know, sh- shelf wobblers and design and promotion were all things that people look down on in our industry. Not so much now, uh, but we did that and we built them. We made our first deals in America. We went from the UK to the US, you know, the world's biggest market then and still is. And then, you know, we were, market cap was about 250 million pounds and we eventually paid $525 million for JWT Group and then found the Japanese property, which their advisors who were Morgan Stanley, I think advised them were worth $30 million. We sold it for $205 million uh, a year or so later. We had to pay tax of a hundred on it, 50%. So we made, we made a net hundred on that. And so reduced the purchase price to 425. They had lousy margins. 
and we managed to to move the margins up. But you know, it was a, it, it, what it gave us. It's unlike S four. What it gave us um, together with Ogilvy in nineteen eighty nine, which we paid about seven hundred fifty million for. Um, and that's when I made a mistake because I, uh, to, I geared, uh, or we geared the purchase with, um, it was half, half, um, cash and half, uh, sorry, half shares and half convertible preferred stock. And in those days, a convertible preferred dividend was not tax deductible. So if you had a 6.4%, I think a 6.7% convertible pref, the, the coupon actually was double that. The tax rates were around 50%. So that was too much heavy leverage for the recession in 91, 92. And we had to restructure the share capital of the company and do a debt for equity swap. But what Ogilvy, which also had a PR company and it had Ogilvy PR and Adams and Reinhardt, very strong. Ogilvy PR was very strong globally, particularly in places like Asia, Pacific. Um, Adams and Reinhardt, run by Jonathan Reinhardt, who was a, quite an explosive ca- character, but was really good at what he did. Um, that was a very good, one of the first financial PR shops in New York. You know, he used to compete against Gershon, Kexton, Kexton Co. and things like that. So what they did, what those two deals did was gave us a backbone, a, you know, people used to criticize JWT or criticize Ogilvy, but they, these were really outstanding brands, outstanding people, outstanding client, client relationships. Um, and it gave us the, the wherewithal. Yeah. You know, it, we had the problems to sort out in the early nineties, but then we motored through the nineties and then 2000, we m- merged effectively with YNR as about half our size so we were two-thirds of the combined operation and they were one third and then 2004 i think it was was gray which took us into proctor so we had unilever at jwt and ogilvy going back to the conflict um uh, issue and we had proctor at gray and we had colgate at yr so we had you know super 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 relationships which in theory you couldn't have in the same operation and we managed to do it by separating things. So that was a little bit of the history. So Sir Martin, you left WPP after 33 years. Now you could have ridden into the sunset and, you know, probably, probably should have done. No. Yeah. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you decide to get back in the saddle and uh, form a new? I I think, you know, retirement is um, a different thing. I think, you know, one of the questions you, you, you said on the, the, set, the sheet you sent me was, you know, do I play golf or whatever? And I didn't want to play golf, an old man's game. And I think people mentally and physically, if they, they don't, if they're not absorbed with something, they, they decline physically and mentally more than if, you know, they have, whether it's challenged or not, whether it's easy or not. The fact that, you know, you're focused on something and enables you to be, um, more energetic. I mean, I always remember, um, it was a guy who, who ran DM, um, DMBNB. 
Um, and I remember meeting his son, and he had retired from DMBB uh, and gone down to Florida and was playing golf most of the time. And I remember his son saying to me, his name was Roy Bostock, and that was it. And his son saying to me, my father's going nuts down in Florida uh, because all you can do is play golf and have dinner with the same people in different locations. So I, I think, I think that's the answer really. I mean, and, and also, you know, we, we thought that those four principles I outlined before were meaningful from a disruption point of view. I mean, we've always been disruptors. Whether when I was at Sarches, that was a disruption. Disruptor. I mean, give you an example. In the UK in those days, in the 1980s, the IPA incorporated practitioners of advertisers, which was the trade association, had a rule that you didn't pitch each other's business. It was meant to be a gentleman's club. In those days, very much a gentleman's club. Um, and, and the, the Sarches said, no, we're not going to have that. So, you know, we built the, what was then the largest holding company in the world with things like Dorland's in the UK, Dancer Fitzgerald in the US, I mean, and Compton in the US and everything. Um, and then with WPP, we, we did it again. We did hostile takeovers and people said you couldn't do hostile takeovers in the ad business because the assets go in and out of the lift. Uh, every day and every night. Um, and then with S4, we're saying digital only and we'll, you know, we, ha- we have disrupted the industry already and we've had our ups and our downs, but we've disrupted the industry already in terms of what we do and how we do it, particularly focusing on the digital space. So it's always been a disruption element to it. And, and the model that WP, S4 is very different to WPV. WPV was sort of basically cash acquisitions uh, where there was a separation between management and control. S4, because the consideration that we issued for the deals that we did, the mergers as we call them, were half shares, half cash. And the theory was with management owning 40% of the company, um, that that would unite management and control. I think that's a central issue. Um, you know, the people who run the holding companies or the senior management of, often don't, there are some exceptions to this rule, but often don't have a big ownership interest. So they're interested in their salary and their jobs um, and their their perks, but they're not really interested in driving the business forward. If The theory is if you have a significant interest in it, you know, equity interest, not, not, not options. You know, Warren Buffett said you wouldn't give an option to an institution for 10 years at no cost. Why, why would you, you know, call on the stock? Why would you do that with management? So management has to put their money where their mouth is. And I think that's really important. So anyway, that's, that's sort of some of the background. So what do you think of the uh, role of AI in the world of public relations, agencies and what have you? Do you indicate well, it's, going to, it's going to turn, in my view, it's going to turn it upside down. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, if I go through the advertising and uh, marketing services industry, the impact. So we're seeing it on visualization and copywriting. So what took you three weeks can take you three hours. 
Um, it's also what's, what's you know, really interesting about that. You know, it's going to invade all other spaces as well. Not in the form necessarily of visualization and copywriting, but in similar forms. So that's one. The second area is hyper-personalization. If we thought we could personalize communications before with the web, with AI, we're going to do it on a hyper-basis. The, the first thing, visualization and copywriting, might reduce employment. It, it'll, and because agencies charge on time and they should ch- ch- charge on outputs, but because they do time, uh, the clients will want to share of it. On the second area, hyper-personalization, means we're going to be producing more assets. So that's a big opportunity. I mean, there'll be a lower price, but we'll do more. And I think the sum will be bigger. The third area is media planning and buying. AI is going to turn it upside down. You know, there are 250,000 people employed in the those six holding companies. It's probably more than that, actually. But within the industry as a whole, it's more than that. Whatever number it is, call it 250,000. And, and you can reduce the digital piece, at least, of the media industry that I said, that the 65%, which will shortly be 70%, to algorithms. And the, the mechanical brain, the, the AI brain, is much more effective in terms of analyzing the planning and the buying. And the outputs are more sophisticated. So the human element comes into its own in judging what those outputs mean for planning and buying. That's the third area. Fourth area is general efficiency, both for the agency and for the client. So give an example. We have this exclusive arrangement with NVIDIA that I mentioned, where the, where the integration partner with AWS, Amazon, Amazon Cloud, and Adobe, on outside broadcasting. So if you're doing outside broadcast, you need a truck. Hmm. That truck will cost you eight or nine million dollars. You amortize it over say five years, it's one and a half million dollars a year. Our AI based solution with NVIDIA and AWS and Adobe can do that for about a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So that's a huge cost reduction. You know, 90% cost reduction. So that's an example of efficiency. And the final area, which I think is probably the most interesting, and publicists, you know, pointed it out in their AI presentation, uh, and their capital markets day a week or so ago, is the, what I call the democratization of knowledge. They refer to their AI bot or whatever it is, Marcel, which they started a few years ago. But being able, you know, we have 900 people working on Alphabet around the company. If you can get every one of those people to know what the other 899 are doing, you have, you have a very powerful combination. So um, those are the five areas. Now, on, on PR, you see the impact this is having on journalism. I mean, I, I talked to many publishers and newspapers. In Davos, there was a group of pretentiously called governors um, who came from the media industry. And what was what was starkly true was that they're starting to reduce their headcounts already. And the the LLMs of the new models can produce 
text. I mean, as a first draft, you could argue, you know, just like with lawyers, I mean, they produce contracts for, for lawyers, but, but then the human, just like in the media planning and buying thing, the human, the output to the human is super good and the human can make better decisions. Now, you know, the question I guess is, you know, ultimately will the machines, you know, is it an existential threat? And you remember the guy at DeepMind resigned because he's worried about AI as an existential threat to human beings. But, but my view is it's going to reduce employment. Um, I, I know that's controversial, but I think AI is it's going to give us more free time. So what Keynes wrote, John Maynard Keynes wrote in 1933, I think it was, that automation would mean we have more holidays. We're going to get more holidays. So, mm-hmm. so but it, maybe 90 years later or 80 years later, but uh, he was right. Yeah. Uh, Sir Martin, just FYI, you know, my background is I used to run a public relations firm in New York City called Lopes and Stevens. My firm was acquired by publicists, and uh, I dealt with, you know, Maurice Levy at the time, somebody I'm sure you know well. And uh, after I left publicists, having run their New York office uh, during my earnout period, I went into mergers and acquisitions in the PR industry. Yeah. Traditionally, acquisitions have been done by other PR organizations or some of the holding companies, but private equity seems to be getting more and more into it. What's your thought about uh, where the future of acquisition well, will be, both in advertising and public relations? Well, one of the mysteries, you know, WPP is limping along, and one of the, the big issues is why hasn't PE moved on it? And, you know, it's probably, it's quite, even with the simplification, the so-called simplification is complex. It's big. You know, if it's $10 billion of market cap, you have to pay a premium of three. Let's assume the debt gets taken care of by the Cantar holding and the um, the uh, FSG holding, uh, which KKI have thirty percent of. Let's assume that equals the debt. Uh, it means you've got an investment there, enterprise value, call it you know, thirteen billion dollars, and that's a big deal for PE. You'd have to have a consort. You can't layer in as much debt today as you could before. So it's risky. And if you believe that AI is going to have an impact, you know, are you worried about that? Is the business, are the media planning and buying businesses, which are the engines of these companies, publicists included, Omnicom included, WPV included, if those engines splutter because of AI, you know, will you have a dud investment? So that's a bit of a mystery. Um, I think a breakup of WPV would be the right answer because there's so much inherent value there. Group M is worth probably the market cap. It's worth 10 billion at least, probably more. Um, so you know, I, I think that private equity is attracted to the financial PR industry, you know, the 10 AOs and the, and the like, the Brunswicks, because, and the KKR has gone into FSG, um, they're attractive because the, the, you know, the numbers are good. I mean, it, it shows consistent growth, you know, four or five percent, whatever it is. The margins are good. Um, AI is going to have an impact. I mean, I think KKR, for example, were interested in buying into FSG because they thought, you know, their portfolio, they could give them, 
oodles of business. Um, and I think that that's true. I mean, I was talking to one quasi PR company, um, a quasi PE company this morning. And we were talking about the issue about integrating their marketing and advertising activities across their portfolio. You know, they do it with property. They do it with procurement. They do it with ERPs. Why not do it with media planning and buying, for example? You know, if you consolidate the media planning and buying in a portfolio of one of the big PE companies, you're talking about zillions. So, so yeah, I think the answer to your question is that PR, whatever you call it, has got stronger. You know, when I think about the days when we first got involved, um, certainly with Hill and Norton, uh, we, we, we struggled a bit on growth. Um, not so much on Ogilvy, actually, with Ogilvy PR and Adams and Reinhardt. That's probably because Ogilvy was a global, was a truly global business. I mean, H and K was still, was global, but it was more focused on the US. Um, but subsequently with, with the internet in the nineties and into the new millennium, you know, PR has become, or what again, I mean, it's not PR in the classic sense. It's PR in a, in an internet age and AI age, which is much broader. Than it was. It was much narrower um, in terms of execution uh, in the eighties, nineteen eighties. Today, you know, it, it, the, the PR agencies can sort of tr- try and hold their own with the creative agencies, and that's what they're doing. You know, I remember Don Imperato who ran Conan Wolf, um, and then when we merged Burson and Conan Wolf together ran the combined whole. I mean, she, you know, she was very keen on trying to build in creative capability, which some caused some problems in the portfolio because the advertising agency will say, what the hell are you doing? And, but, you know, the simple fact of the matter is PR has become much more sophisticated. I think that's the best, probably the best way of putting it is more, much more sophisticated, mm-hmm. driven by, by online media. I just have a couple more questions for you. Uh, sir. Sure. Thank you so much uh, for your time and, and your, your knowledge. What is your ultimate goal? What is it you still want to achieve in your well, life? Well, I think, I think, I think, I, you know, look, I, I, this model is, uh, uh, as it, as I said, it has those four ca- characteristics. Um, we have very significant, I mean, our top 13 clients are 55% of our revenue. The revenues are about a billion pounds. Um, you know, we want to demonstrate that this model works at scale. We talk about whoppers. Uh, these are clients over $20 million. And, you know, our objective is 20 squared. That's 20 of those times 20. Um, we've got about half that at the moment. Um, so the, ob- the object, the exercise is to build relationships at a scale with the three areas we're in content data and digital media, and technology services. So that's the objective. So the answer is, you know, what I'd like to see is proof of concept that, you know, we we are you know, we started well. You know, we, last year was a difficult year for us. And actually, as we've said on the trading update, net revenues, net revenues were down 4%. Hmm. 
having, you know, over the first few years, we went 40%, this is like for likes, 40%. In the COVID year, we were 21%, which was a superb performance. Then another, I think it was 43 and then 26 and now minus four. So, um, you know, we've got, we've got to get back on the growth track and our margins are not as strong as they were. And we should be doing better, uh, on the, on the margin side. So the, the, the answer is, you know, proof of concept, I think. Look, I'd like to thank you so much, uh, really for pleasure. joining us today, Sir Martin. And, uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you. And I hope one day you'll look at some of the acquisitions I bring you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And, and okay, uh, very good. And for all of you out there, thank you for joining us. This is Art Stevens signing off on a wonderful, Visit with Sir Martin Sorrell. Thank you so much. Thank you.